The first title was Between Beginning and End. Thank you, yes. And yeah, oh, that's a good title for what I have to say. And then the other one is uh, The Open Sanctuary, I think, which, um, uh, so I'm going to try to talk about those together. Uh, it may end up being feeling like two lectures in one period of time, which is kind of what it is. I don't have any notes for these, so you'll just have to listen. Uh, and I'll say what I said earlier in the day. Uh, a lot of what I'm talking about this evening is repeating stuff that I said during the day. But I know we have some remedial students this evening who are not here during the day and are going to have to catch up with the rest of the class. So uh, the remedial stuff is for those of you who weren't here. And you'll be able to catch up and be, uh, be in the know. Um, before we begin, let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he's made a way for us to enter into your presence. We thank you that we are incorporated by your spirit into his body, enlivened by your spirit, and can ascend by your spirit into your presence. We thank you that you've met with us in our worship this evening uh, and that uh, you've accepted our praises and our prayers and uh, have uh, answered and heard us and spoken to us. We pray that you continue to speak to us as we consider things this evening as uh, we seek to understand more deeply what it means to be worshipers of our God and Father, worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I want to um, put what I was saying earlier today in the context of uh, the basic question of why do we worship? Why do we gather on a particular day every Sunday, a particular day every week, uh, and go through certain kinds of repeated uh, actions and events. We, uh, even if we don't have a set liturgy, uh, our churches tend to go through the same kinds of, uh, same kinds of things every week. Uh, and if you ask that question, I think many Christians would answer in terms of a kind of obligation. Certainly in some traditions, it would be an obligation that you have, uh, God has commanded you, called you, the church expects you to be at uh, uh, service in the, in Sunday, on Sunday morning. And so you show up and you worship because that's obedience to God and a response to his command. Uh, and that's a perfectly good answer. There's nothing wrong with that. And that's true. God does call us, invite us into his house. Uh, he commands us to worship him. Uh, and uh, that, that, uh, that is an obligation. I think that's an, uh, a, a good way to say uh, to say that there's a good reason to give for worshiping. And I think it's one that we perhaps have not, not emphasized in recent decades, centuries perhaps, as much as we ought. Again, in some traditions, the idea of obligation is an overriding one. Uh, but in a lot of cases, it's, uh, it, it uh, has reduced from an obligation to something less than that, um, something that's edifying but not an obligation. Uh, so I think it's important to, uh, to emphasize that uh, aspect of obedience. Uh, when God invites you into his house, uh, you go. And he invites you every week. And so you go, unless there's some reason why you, one, some specific reason why you aren't able to. Uh, but I think if we just stat, stop with that, stop with that answer, then I think we're not understanding the full depth and scope of what we're doing in worship. And uh, this is where the title, 
of my talk, between beginning and end, uh, fits, because what we're doing in worship is both a, a, a kind of recapitulation or restitution of, the, uh, of Adam's uh, privilege to be in the Lord's presence, to uh, meet with him in the garden, uh, and also an anticipation of a future eternal presence uh, in glory in the new creation, in new heavens and new earth, uh, in a, uh, a city, a cosmic city temple that's now glorified. Uh, what we're doing in worship is looking, looking in both directions, uh, and, it's, um, and it is a, uh, an anticipation of uh, that future reality. Uh, and during the day, I talked about this in terms of creation uh, being a temple. God's, God created a world that is uh, a house. Various uh, scripture passages that use architectural language to describe the creation. There are foundations to the creation. There are pillars to the creation. The sky is conceived of as kind of a, a tent canopy over us. Uh, so there's various ways the Bible describes the universe as a house, but it's specifically a house for God's presence, it's a house for God to dwell in. Uh, and uh, the whole creation is a temple. And we can see this in part, as I pointed out earlier today, if you look at the way that uh, uh, temples and sanctuaries are described and how their building and construction is described, and uh, particularly in the case of the tabernacle, the way that Exodus describes the and arranges the uh, the uh, uh, description of the of the tabernacle, the pattern that Moses is supposed to follow, um, and the way that Moses actually builds the tabernacle. Both of those things point back to creation and show us that the tabernacle is a small scale new creation that Moses is building at the foot of Sinai. Uh, the the uh, instructions about the tabernacle in Exodus twenty five to thirty one are set up in a series of seven speeches. The seven speeches uh, are expansions on alluding, they allude to the original seven words or seven days of creation. Uh, the last speech in Exodus 31 is a command to keep Sabbath. Uh, and the last day, of course, of the creation week is the Sabbath that the Lord sanctifies and sets apart as a day of ceasing. Um, so the building of the tabernacle is described as a seven speech in seven speech sequence. Uh, and that means the tabernacle is a kind of new creation. And you can think back that that is saying something about creation as a whole. If the small-scale creation is uh, a sanctuary, that suggests that the, the cosmic, the large-scale, the, the, macro, uh, the macrocosm is a sanctuary. And then we looked at Exodus 40 a little bit, and when Moses is actually putting together the tabernacle, he first sets up the, the form, the shape of the tabernacle, with the boards in their sockets and the and the tent canopy, the various layers of the tent canopy over that. Uh, and he builds the uh, empty shell of the sanctuary. And then he begins to fill it and, and arrange it. He puts the ark and then a screen that divides the ark from the rest of the inter, inner sanctuary. He puts in the table. He puts in the lampstand. He puts in the altar in the holy place. Puts up another barrier that separates the holy place from the courtyard. Then he puts the altar and the laver in the courtyard. So the, the overall sequence is one of forming the tabernacle, putting up the shape, the empty shell, and then filling it with the furnishings of the tabernacle, which is the same sequence that we have in, in Genesis. In, if you look at Genesis 1, the general 
movement of creation is from God shaping a three-story universe. At the end of two and a half days of creation, he's got a firmament above, which he calls heaven. You've got land underneath, and then the water's under the earth. Uh, you've got three stories in the universe, and then the tabernacle is being... And then, and then he begins to fill it with plants, sun, moon, and stars, animals, fish, and so on. He fills these different environments over the course of the second half of the week. So forming and filling is the way that creation is done. Forming and filling is the way that Moses builds the tabernacle, which again leads us to think, well, if Moses is building a sanctuary using these creation motifs and uh, this pattern of creation, then the original creation must have been a uh, must have been a temple, but the temple's not finished. God creates a glorious house, but this house is supposed to be further glorified. Uh, and the way that uh, the way that the, the pattern that God gives for that further glorification and enhancement of the world is by placing Adam in a sanctuary within the cosmic sanctuary, which is the garden. The garden is a sanctuary for reasons that we examined earlier today. The garden is a sanctuary. It's the first place of meeting with God. And that garden sanctuary is the pattern for the whole cosmos. Someday the whole world, the whole cosmic temple, will resemble the, the microcosmic temple, which is the Garden of Eden. Someday the entire universe will look like Solomon's temple. That's part of the message of Revelation 21 and 22 as it picks up various uh, dimensions, shapes, uh, uh, um, materials, from the temple, uh, from the temple design, and describes it uh, applies these to the uh, uh, to the design of the uh, the New Jerusalem, the pattern of, or the form of the New Jerusalem. For example, um, Revelation twenty one, uh, 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 John is on a mountain. He's seeing a vision of the city descend. Uh, like other prophets, he's seeing a vision of a He's getting, seeing a pattern that, has, that is going to be replicated. Moses saw a pattern on the mountain that was supposed to be replicated at the foot of Sinai, the tabernacle. Ezekiel is on a high, great and high mountain. He's, he sees an uh, elaborate temple that is going to guide the way the people who will build when they return. John is now on a great and high mountain, seeing the pattern of the holy city, Jerusalem. It's a vision of an ideal people of God, it's a vision of an ideal and completed creation, but it's also the pattern for what uh, creation is, how, how we're supposed to build. And, uh, and again, uh, this new Jerusalem has uh, features of the temple. Verse 16, for example, says, the city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its width. He measured the city with a rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and its height are equal. So it's uh, cubic or at least has uh, three dimensions that are all equal to each other, which uh, is not, the, those are not the dimensions of the temple, but they are dimensions, not these particular dimensions. The, the temple was not 1,500 miles wide and 1,500 miles high, but the cubic shape, the fact that all of the dimensions are the same, that is the most holy place. This city is laid out that way, which means now we have a city which is the new creation, the, the new Jerusalem, that is, has, where the, the, the uh, most holy place has encompassed the entire creation. The entire creation has become a glorified sanctuary. Uh, as you move on, verse, uh, verses 18 and following, the material of the city is jasper, the city is pure gold like clear glass. 
uh, gold is pure gold, especially, is a material of the temple, the inner sanctuary of the temple. The foundation of the sto uh, foundation stones of the city are adorned with every kind of precious stone, and then it lists a bunch of precious stones, 12 of them, which put us in mind of the priest, the priest with his breastplate and 12 stones that uh, represent the 12 tribes of Israel on his breastplate. This city is a bride. This city is a temple. This city is the most holy place, now expanded to cosmic proportion proportions. This city, in some way, is a kind of a civic version of the priest, adorned with the same stones that adorned the priest's, uh, the priest's garments of glory and beauty. Uh, it's full of light. Uh, so the, the entire creation now has become temple. Uh, and that's that trajectory to uh, turn the creation that is originally a temple into glorified, enhanced temple, uh, to remake it after the model of the garden and to glorify it from a garden to a city, uh, that is a, the program from at the beginning of uh, creation. Adam is placed within the cosmic temple, placed in the microcosmic temple of the garden, and he's supposed to make the whole creation look like the garden, and, uh, and he's supposed to identify the entire creation. And so the place of worship, which is the Garden of Eden, the place where Adam and Eve meet with God is, uh, when they meet with God, they're not just fulfilling an obligation. Though certainly that's the case. They're, they're supposed to meet with God there and commune with God there. Uh, but they're also in the place that is anticipating the end of all things. What they're doing in that, that uh, small space of the garden anticipates what will be done in the entire cosmos at the end. What, uh, what is uh, the, the design of that uh, garden is uh, the preliminary form of the design of the fulfilled creation. So when we're in worship, uh, we are not just, we're communing with God, we're, we're responding to him obediently, but we're also in the midst of the entire movement of creation from uh, its first glory to its final glory, from beginning to end. We're between beginning and end. And that, uh, that what we do in worship is an anticipation of uh, that final communion. Uh, it's, in fact, a partial accomplishment of that final glorification of creation. Uh, when we gather together in, in our churches, uh, we are uh, creating, forming by the Spirit, by the power of God, we're forming a little outpost of what the whole universe is one day going to look like. And what we're doing in that hour of worship is a, not just a picture, but it's actually an accomplishment of what will happen to the whole creation uh, throughout all eternity. Uh, just, just think about it from this angle, another passage from Revelation, Revelation 7. Uh, we have, um, after the 144,000 are sealed, they have this vision of a great multitude. Verse 9 of Revelation 7. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation, all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and all the elders of the four living creatures, they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and might and power. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered and said to me, These are those who, came, who are clothed with white robes. Who are they? From where have they come? 
And I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said, these are those who were washed, who come out of the great tribulation. They washed the robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. Uh, they they no, shall no longer hunger, neither shall they thirst anymore, neither shall the sun be down on them. What we have here, uh, I'll go back to another couple of chapters to pick up the wider point. What we have here is a vision of nations, a vision of angels joining together in praise and uh, worship of God. The creation is being filled. And that picks up on a vision uh, earlier in Revelation 5, uh, where after the Lamb receives the, the, uh, the, the book and begin, is ready to open the seals, we have a series of kind of a cascading uh, acts of worship. We have the angels and the living creatures around the throne. They're worshiping God. Uh, and then myriads and myriads of angels join in, thousands and thousands, in Revelation 5.11. They join in, worthy is the Lamb. And then every created thing, which is in heaven on earth and under the earth and on the sea, and everything in it joins in to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory. In both of those visions, we have this portrait of a world that's filled with praise. That is the ultimate destiny of everything. This is where everything's going. This is, where, this is what history was designed to culminate with. And every Sunday, we're gathering together and we're doing this. And again, we're not just picturing something that's going to happen in the future. We're actually realizing the future in the present because we are gathering together and we, at least, a part of the creation, are joining to praise the one on the throne and the Lamb. Um, I talked about this uh, today in terms of liturgical architecture. It's not just what we're doing as we gather, but it's the physical space around us that is also a, uh, a partial... Uh, achievement of that eventual eschatological reality. Uh, when we have the created things, uh, stones and wood uh, and uh, you know, the, the materials that went into making the chairs and the building, whatever it happens to be made of. When you have all of that that's being devoted to the worship of God, a place that is for uh, the worship of God, that is not just a sign of creation being transformed into worship, it is in fact creation being transformed into worship at, in that particular place. Um, so um, uh, uh, that's, uh, stones, are, stones are created to be incorporated into worship. Uh, as I said earlier today, grain and grapes are incorporated, are, are created in order to be incorporated into the feast, the marriage feast of the Lamb. And we're doing that every Sunday. Um, Matter exists to become the matter of the kingdom of God. This world exists to be transformed into the kingdom of God. And that is happening in the liturgy every time we meet together. We're already uh, uh, anticipating and realizing in part the destiny of the whole creation. So that puts a different kind of, uh, uh, puts our worship in a different kind of context. Uh, it's not just a personal obligation that we have or corporate obligation, uh, we are at the center of what God is doing in the entire history of the universe when we gather for worship. Uh, and what we're doing in that time of worship is realizing God's purposes and uh, God's purposes for the creation. And we're realizing uh, in, uh, uh, in part the destiny of all things. And I'm, I, I trust that that gives a, a, 
I hope that lends some excitement. Uh, if you're not already excited about worship, I hope that lends some excitement. If you already are already excited, I hope it lends additional excitement uh, to think that uh, your, uh, it, uh, your worship, even, even if you're gathering together with a handful of people, your worship uh, is part of that, uh, that uh, uh, God's big plan for the whole of human history. Um, uh, I want to say that another, there's another sense in which that's true, that the, uh, our worship is a signal and a sign and a realization of the destiny and the aim of human history in another sense. And this gets into the second phase of my lecture, which is actually a second, second lecture, but made a little segue there. So it sounds like a smooth single lecture. I don't know if you noticed that. I probably shouldn't have called attention to it because that, <laughs> that made it sound a little clumsy, didn't it? So um, here I want to think about, um, we start with the question, what is, what is the good news? What is, what, are the, what, are the, what is the good news that we have to proclaim? What is the gospel? And uh, there are lots of different answers to that. I think the New Testament uh, puts a lot of emphasis on the fact that uh, it's a royal announcement. Paul is set apart as an apostle to proclaim the gospel of God. That is, this is the beginning of Romans. And he summarizes that gospel in a couple lines, saying um, it's about the son of uh, uh, Jesus Christ who came uh, as uh, us, the seed of David in the flesh, who was proclaimed son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. Uh, the, the good news that Paul's proclaiming, the good news that Paul is entrusted with, is a proclamation that the son of David has come, the long-awaited king has come. Uh, he is a descendant of David, and now he's being proclaimed as king, son of God, uh, by his resurrection from the dead, and he is on the throne. And that's really, really good news, because it means that all the people that look like they're on thrones aren't. Uh, and there are a lot of people that pretend to be on thrones. There are a lot of people that have power that we don't want to be on the throne of the universe. Uh, and they're not. Jesus, the crucified. Uh, Jesus, the compassionate. Jesus, the just. He's the one who's on the throne. Uh, that's very good news. And it's good news for the nations. Uh, good news for some, some nations. It's bad news for others. <laughs> Um, because he's, a, he's the one on the throne who holds an, a, an iron rod and dashes nations like pottery. Uh, he is uh, the, the, uh, the king who calls judges to account and calls other kings to account because he's king of all kings and judge of all judges. Uh, that's good news. And beyond that, the good news that uh, Jesus as king is distributing his royal gifts to his people, preeminently the royal gift of the Spirit, because once Jesus is enthroned, he gives gifts to men. And all those gifts that Ephesians 4 talks about are gifts that come through the one great gift of the Spirit. God has given God to us. Um, Jesus the King, the incarnate Son, has received the Spirit, which he's poured out on us. Um, so it's not just good news because he's in charge, but it's good news because as a good and just and generous King, he distributes, he, he, uh, lavishly distributes his gifts to his people. Um, and those gifts are all included in the great gift of the Spirit. That's one way to say it. Uh, you can all say the good news is about uh, Jesus uh, achieving forgiveness. He's taken the curse for us. He's taken our 
the punishment that we deserved. He's borne that on the cross. And God has justified him by the resurrection. And that means that God declares us and considers us forgiven. It, it means that whatever we have done in the past, uh, whatever colors or stains our lives, is taken care of by Jesus. It's all removed. And we're incorporated into him, and we can stand before God with confidence. We can enter into God's presence with confidence. That's good news, uh, that we have new life, that our old life has been uh, uh, blotted out. God has put our sins as far from him as the east is from the west. He remembers our sins no more, and he does that because of what Jesus accomplished. That's good news. Uh, And we could go on. There are a lot of different ways that the New Testament describes the good news of Jesus. Uh, one, of the, one of the aspects of that is good liturgical news. The good news is good liturgical news. What do I mean by that? What's well, good news that God has, uh, has uh, come near and invited people into his house, and he's been doing that uh, for uh, millennia. God established his house uh, in the Old Covenant. He came near. He dwelt among the Israelites. He told Moses to build him a tent so that he could live among the tents of Israel. He could share their wanderings. Uh, And he had a house where they could gather and eat, drink, and rejoice in his presence. Um, That's good news by itself, that God has established a place where uh, he opens uh, opens up his welcome and opens his house for hospitality. Uh, But that hospitality, as we talked about earlier today, that hospitality in the Old Covenant is limited. Uh, Israel is still in the still in Adam. They're still to the east of Eden. They can come near, but they can't go all the way in. Uh, and that's according to Hebrews. That's the whole purpose of having a a, 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 a a tabernacle, and particularly a tabernacle with two chambers. There's barriers between the people who want to enter into God's presence and God. Uh, And that's a bad thing because everything you want, everything you want is in the presence of God. Everything you want is there in the most holy place. God has his treasures waiting for us there in the most holy place. But we can't get in there. And in the Old Testament, these treasures are symbolized by the three things that are inside the most holy place, by the three gifts of God. Uh, What's inside the most holy place? What's inside the ark? Well, they're the tablets of stone that Moses uh, brought down from the mountain. The instruction of God, the word of God. But the word of God is, in some sense, uh, concealed in the Old Testament. It's it's hidden in the treasure chest of the ark. Those tablets are inside the most holy place, and you can't get there. What else is in the ark? You've got a jar of manna uh, that was retrieved from the wilderness wanderings, and that jar is preserved inside the ark. There's bread there. There's life, but you can't get there because you're on the outside. You're a lay Israelite, even if you're the high priest. I mean, you don't go and rummage around inside the ark. You you slip in a couple times during the Day of Atonement uh, and get out as fast as you can because um, you don't linger in the presence of God under the Old Covenant circumstance. You're you're still in Adam, and so you need to keep at some distance. But the man is in there. And the other thing that's inside the holy place, uh, most holy place, if not the ark itself, is the, the uh, Aaron's rod. <clears throat> you remember uh, the story of Aaron's rod. 
after the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, the Lord said, I'm going to choose one to come near to me. There's a leader from every tribe, every one of the 12 tribes. Take your staff and put it in my presence inside the tabernacle. And the one that bears fruit, that one that comes alive in my presence, uh, is the, he's, that's the staff of the man who can live in my presence. And Aaron's staff is the one that blossoms and buds and produces almond blossoms. Um, there's a pun going on there in the Hebrew. The almond means, uh, the word for almond and the word for watch are similar words. So Aaron is the one who's going to go in and keep charge and keep watch over God's house. And he can go in there and be a fruitful tree, a fruitful staff inside the Lord's house. And that's signified by his rod. That rod is inside the most holy place too, uh, even if it's not inside the ark. You have these, you have these gifts hidden away uh, inside the ark, but they're not uh, distributed, at least not fully. Uh, Israel can offer sacrifices. They can hear the word of God given to them. But the whole symbolism of the sanctuaries of the Old Testament shows that they're still at some distance, and th- these treasures are not yet fully given to the people of God. But then as re- I read in the gospel reading this evening, uh, Jesus has come, and Jesus has died. And when Jesus dies, apocalypse happens. There's an earthquake, and people start talking about Elijah, <laughs> uh, mistakenly, but they talk about Elijah, Elijah, the one who's supposed to come before the, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Um, there are rocks split, tombs are open, Gentiles get converted. Everything you want from an apocalypse happens right there. Uh, this is a world-ending event. I mean, the aftershocks of this event continue for several decades before the, the old world is actually shaken down completely. But it begins here, and one of the things that happens here, of course, in verse, uh, Matthew 27, 51, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to bottom as the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were open. Uh, uh, that's, uh, I think, has a, a, a double kind of significance. If the whole point of a temple is to keep people at a distance and to keep them out, a temple with a ripped veil is, is no longer a very useful temple because the whole point is for it to be a barrier. Uh, and that once you open a way in, then it's not fulfilling the function for which it was built anymore. And of course, the other message is a more positive one. It's, it's a condemnation of the temple in one sense. The other message is a more positive one, and that is that Jesus, by his death, has opened a way into the sanctuary of God so that all of these treasures can be distributed to us, so we can, so we can receive the fullness of his word, so that we can receive the fullness of his bread, of his life so we can receive the fullness of his guidance as, uh, and his priestly care. Um, Jesus is all of those things, of course. Jesus is the bread of heaven. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. Jesus is the true and great high priest. If we have Jesus, then we have all of those treasures of the, of the most holy place. And now they're going to be distributed because the way into the, into the house is open. I, I, guess, I guess the Jews must have sewn the, the veil back together again because they continued to do use the temple and you wouldn't think that they would continue to use the temple with a big rip in the veil 
they would want to seal that up in some fashion. Um, but um, eventually that temple is going to be torn down completely. And we're told in Hebrews, of course, that not only has the earthly temple been opened up, but that is a sign of the opening of the heavenly temple. Uh, where the, uh, the fullest treasures of God are to be found. We no, longer have, we no longer just have access to an earthly sanctuary, but Jesus has entered into the heavenly sanctuary as the greater priest who's making a way for us into the original, not a, copy of the, not a copy of the sanctuary, but the original sanctuary. And all of the gifts that God has to give us are available there because Jesus is there and we can uh, enter into his presence and receive them. He gives himself as bread. He gives himself as word. He is our priest and our guide, our good shepherd who, uh, who guides us through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, that's the good news. That's one way to talk about the gospel, liturgical good news, because we're no longer, uh, we're no longer at a distance. We're no longer uh, excluded from the, uh, from the presence of God, and that means we're no longer excluded from these gifts. God has all these gifts to give us, uh, and, that, uh, and he invites us to come in. I think that does have something to do uh, that has some implications for how, how the, we talked about uh, liturgical architecture today, for those remedial students who didn't make it during the day, you know who you are. We talked about talked about liturgical architecture, and if we're if we're actually inside the sanctuary, that should that should be represented in some way by the way that the uh, the the uh, place of worship is set up. So, uh, if you go into a place of worship and it is the open ark and the open uh, inner sanctuary, then you should see the word. You should see a table spread with the bread of life on it. You should see uh, somebody who is uh, a a sub-shepherd of the good shepherd who shares in Jesus' priestly ministry to you, uh, preferably wearing a a nice white robe like, like they do in heaven. That's what you should see. And when you see that, if you come into the church and you see, uh, I'm, I'm ragging on Orthodox again, if you see an iconostasis and there's a barrier between, uh, uh, an icon screen as a barrier between the people that are outside and what's the, the things that are happening in the background, up in heaven, the Orthodox will tell you, uh, that's not communicating open sanctuary. It's, mean, it's communicating that there's a few people that can go th- into the open, through the door into the sanctuary and enter into the place, into the uh, inner sanctuary, but not everybody. Fortunately, he comes out and he, you know, he's he's in and out and he uh, he's uh, uh, he doesn't go and hide inside behind the icon screen. Not supposed to. Uh, but still, that's that's sending a very different message than walking into a church and seeing the gifts of God fully on display, uh, right in front of your face with no barriers. They're all for you. They're fully for you. Uh, you have the full word of God now written down. Uh, you have uh, the uh, bread of God, which is Jesus. You have Jesus as the great high priest who sends his shepherds to uh, guide you. Those are all the gifts of God. That's the good news, that we now have those. This also says something about what our intentions in, what, are, what are our intentions and goals are for worship. I, I, uh, hey, look, I can, I can segue back to the beginning of the first lecture. 
Remember the first lecture, or the first part of this very neatly, intricately designed lecture, when I asked, why do we worship? Why do we go to worship on Sunday? Obligation, we said. Uh, that was one good answer. Well, it's not the only answer. It's also because we're gathering together as an anticipation of the future reality of everything, and not just anticipating it, but realizing it and contributing to the full realization of that as we worship. Uh, but we're also going into, the, uh, into worship in order to receive God's, God's gifts. We go there so that God can talk to us, which he does when the word is read and when the, the minister teaches. He's teaching, he's teaching the scriptures. He's teaching uh, Jesus is speaking to you uh, through, that, through, that, uh, through that minister. Uh, you go there for, to be fed. When God opens his house, he has a table. Um, I said this earlier today. I'll say it again tomorrow. I repeat this a lot because I think it's, uh, it's really important. There is no biblical worship. There's no worship in the Bible anywhere without a table. You've got an altar. That's a table. You've got foodstuffs every time you have worship. There's no such thing as worship without food. Worship without a table in the Bible. Uh, and uh, you, go to the, you go to worship in order to receive that. So God can speak to you, and so God can feed you, and he can do that, speak to you, and feed you through his chosen and ordained minister. Which means, yes, we go to, work, go to church to get stuff. Seeker-friendly, right? We're going to church to get stuff. Is that right? Yes, that is right. That is right. Uh, we tend to, we reform people, we, not we Theopolis people, but we reform people. I need to define who I mean by we here. Um, we reform people tend to recoil at that. No, 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 no. I don't want to get anything from God in worship. I want to give him something. <laughs> like, what do, you, what do you got to give him? What you got? Okay. You got Nothing. Unless he's given it to you before, uh, you're going into the house of God so that he can minister to you through word and through bread, uh, ministered by, his, by his, uh, his chosen instrument. Of, of course, there's a wrong way to go to worship to get stuff. If what you're seeking in worship is a kind of emotional high, if that's what you're wanting, uh, that would be a distorted kind of going to get. Uh, if you're going because there's a lot of cute guys or a lot of cute girls at the particular church you're going to, that's probably, so you're going to get a mate. Uh, that's, that's a motivation to go to church. That's probably not the best motivation. That's a going to get that's not exactly what I have in mind. Um, there's also a sense, of course, in which we offer things to God. We offer ourselves to God. Uh, we offer our works to God through offerings. We offer our praise to God. We offer living sacrifices in our songs and our prayers. But that's only possible because we've first received. You have nothing you have not received. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And uh, that's true in worship as much as it is outside of worship. Um, anything we give to God in worship is something that we receive from him. Uh, and that gift from God is always prior uh, to what we give him. 
So um, you know, Reformed people like to say, no, worship should be God-centered. And by worship being God-centered, they mean we're focusing on him in praise and prayer. We're not going there to receive anything, but we want to focus. I'm exaggerating, of course, but this is for, to make a point. We're going there to offer ourselves and our praises to God. We want to be God-centered. Um, well, I think there's a, there's a question of who God is at work there. Who is the God that you're going to uh, that you're going to uh, honor? Who is the God who is at the center? Uh, is the God who's at the center of our worship the God who exists merely to receive glory and as my friend Jeff Myers likes to say, suck glory out of everything else? Is that how God glorifies himself? God glorifies himself by making sure nothing else has any glory because then by way of contrast, he's really, really glorious. Or do we worship a God who glorifies himself by bestowing glory, by giving glory? He glorifies himself by glorifying. I think you can read the first chapter of the Bible and answer that question. A God who wants to suck glory from everything has no business creating a world, <laughs> especially a beautiful world, a well-ordered world. That itself, uh, the creation itself is a bestowal of glory on something other than God. And that's the first thing we learn about God, is that he's that kind of God. Uh, God is a giving God, not just by accident, not simply by creation, but he's a giving God in his eternal being. Because the Father gives the Spirit to the Son, bestows the Spirit on the Son eternally, and the, Spirit, the Son gives the Spirit to the Father and offers himself to the Father uh, eternally in the Spirit. That exchange and communion takes place uh, as a, uh, that's the, that, that is the dy dynamic of divine life. God is a giving God in creation because he's a giving God in himself. So putting that God at the center if that's the God we're trying to worship, and that's the God we want to make central in our worship, that means we go in receptively. Uh, and it's, uh, God isn't just kicking off worship. God isn't just uh, initiating things outside of worship and letting us you know, run our own steam once we get into church. Uh, our entire service is uh, a response to God's service to us. Our giving ourselves to God is always based on God's prior giving of himself to us. That's proper Trinitarian God-centeredness in worship, that we're going to honor God, surely by honor God, but honor God by receiving, gratefully receiving the gifts that he has to give. And that's, again, those gifts are the gifts that he's had hidden away and now has bestowed on us in his son. Uh, he's the God who is, uh, gives himself, and he gives himself through these gifts. He gives himself in his word. He gives himself in the bread. He gives himself through the minister. Uh, and we receive gratefully and uh, receive the Lord's service to us. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, and we thank you that he's made a way for us in the heavenly sanctuary, and that heaven, or, heaven and earth are joined when we gather together in your presence. We thank you that Jesus has opened up your treasures, that he himself is your treasure, your word flesh enfleshed, your bread come down from heaven, your high priest, our high priest. We thank you that he is all those gifts and that he's bestowed himself on us through his spirit 
and we pray that as we continue to think about these things, that you would make us truly receptive worshipers, ready to hear his word, ready to receive his bread, ready to receive his self-gift, and to be caught up into his giving so that we could serve you faithfully as his people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.